Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Alrighty, we are back. How is everybody doing out there today? Happy Thursday. Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding Podcast. Here today, not with Jeff, but by myself. But actually, we do have a very special guest, a contributor to Focus Compounding, who has contributed a lot to the website, writing up a bunch of ideas, Mr. Luke Elliott. Luke, how are you doing today? Andrew, I'm doing great. Thanks for the invite. I'm glad to talk to you. Looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, I guess before we get into the idea that you wrote up a little bit about on the website, maybe you could give us sort of a background um, really on you and your investing style, the types of companies that you look for, because I feel like that will be a good introduction to the business that we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, so a little background on me. Uh, just a few years ago, I got into investing, knew absolutely nothing about it until uh, maybe three or four years ago. And uh, one day, like, I was, I was pretty into fantasy football at the time, um, but I was spending, like, quite a bit of time on it. And I was just like, man, this year I'm not going to play fantasy football. I'm going to teach myself something new. And I'd always kind of had an inclination for math and just more like analytical type stuff um, and not that that particularly helps with investing but at the time I, I thought that it did it, it definitely doesn't hurt so I just started listening uh, to some investing podcasts um, that are out there like the top ones when you search and just really got into it the whole Buffett Munger approach kind of like you and and Jeff um, prescribed to and just kind of you know, been soaking up everything for the last few years investing myself. So that's just a little bit about my background and the type of stuff that I like to invest in. Um, I, I'm definitely concentrated compared to most investors. So I think right now, like my top three holdings are something like 50% of my portfolio. And I don't like to hold maybe more than 10 to 12 stocks. Um, I really prescribe kind of Manish provide talks about you know, few bets, big bets, infrequent bets. So I kind of try to stick stick with that. I don't think that you need to overly diversify. Um, so that's kind of like my investing style. I'm agnostic to size or growth first value. I try not to kind of categorize myself into one bucket. You know, some people say like deep value versus blah, blah, blah. But really, I just want to buy companies that... Um, I think are good companies, quality companies, and worth more than I'm paying. Uh, so I own one company in my portfolio is like 50 billion market cap, but I also own the company that we're going to talk about today, Sonics and Materials, and they're like a 34 mil market cap, and they're a dark stock over the counter. So I just really look look all over the place, but I would say the, the majority of my holdings and what I write up for the Focus Compounding website tends to be more microcap stuff. Sure. Just because I, I think that overall there's, you know, less competition and therefore more inefficiency. 
Uh, and I think I'm willing to buy companies that, you know, some people can't or, or are unwilling to. So sure. And I'm just kind of, yeah. And I'm just kind of curious. So since you're all over the map, which I think is great, um, you know, when you invest in a dark micro cap and then compare that to the $50 billion company that you're also invested in, do you feel like the volatility is kind of different? Do you feel like Sonics and Materials, they sort of it sort of moves really on its own fundamentals instead of like the market's up and it's up and the market's down, it's down compared to the $50 billion company? Have you noticed anything or, or thought anything oh. about that? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I have a lot of like tracker shares, which I define as just kind of like a company that's dark. And so the only way you get their annual report is if, um, you own a share so I just like buy one share and get their report every year to see if an opportunity arises and with all kind of the dark really small companies that are illiquid they just yeah the way that their volatility is completely independent of what the general market's doing like with SEMA I think it I wrote it up at eight dollars and it just sat there for a month or two and then just went to ten in one day oh wow um, so much different than, you know, the market moving around every single day. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's kind of how it is. And Jeff and I have talked about it. It's a, it's a whole lot, especially our portfolio. And we're in the overlooked stock space and people sort of, they, they put us in like a micro cap bucket. Um, and we're not a micro cap fund or firm or anything like that. Right. Micro caps is a component of, um, of our overlooked stocks. Um, but, you know, we do own like a company that's a billion dollars and, um, you know, we're not just like incredibly small companies. But what's interesting is from watching the portfolio over the past year is it's a whole lot of nothing going on and then just a couple big moves. At least that's how it's been in, in our experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's interesting. So because you this is a dark stock, I'm kind of curious. Where do you usually get your ideas and how did you come across this company? I guess maybe I should uh, talk about it first. So the company we're going to be talking about is Sonics and Materials. It's a business that um, Luke wrote up for the website on Focus Compounding and his title was A Profitable Net Net Building a Cash Pile. He wrote it up when it was $8 a share, just like he said, and now it's uh, $10 a share. And when you wrote it up, it was a $27 million market cap and now it's right around $35 million. Uh, so that will sort of lead us into you know our conversation. So where do you where did you come across this company? And, and where do you typically come across your companies? Yeah, uh, good question. I mean, I think that I have various sources that I look at, um, really kind of like a lot of investing blogs. And uh, I mean, Focus Compounding website, I think, is a great idea, or a great source to get ideas from, uh, whether that's Jeff or, you know, other contributing members that, that write up companies. Um, and I also read letters of some of like the smaller funds out there that kind of get distributed over the internet. Um, and then sometimes, you know, I'll just the old school way, get a list of stocks and go one by one and try to narrow it down. Um, I don't do a lot of screens, uh, like some people do, but I also have friends that are interested in investing so sometimes they'll throw some ideas out to me as well mm -hmm. sure yeah that's interesting how'd you come across SEMA oh yeah SEMA um, there's a, a blog out there called no name stocks run by a guy named Dan Shum um, so that's one of the ones that I follow and uh, yeah maybe we can link to it in the show notes yeah definitely. definitely a good blog to check out I mean Dan um, we've corresponded and he, he definitely has kind of a different investing style than me, but there's some overlap uh, clearly. And 
that's where I first came across SEMA. Yeah, that's interesting. So what's the liquidity um, and the float like on this business? When you purchased it, I'm guessing in your personal account, did you have, was it like a problem or how, what was sort of your experience with that? Yeah. So the CEO owns 70% of the company. And like you said, it's around 34, 35 mil. Um, so the float's something like 10 mil. Um, and it doesn't trade a lot of days. It's really illiquid. Um, so it's probably best for, you know, private investors or small funds. And in terms of buying it, it's like really illiquid. So I would just precaution everybody that if you do want to buy it, uh, well, first do your own research, but, um, yeah. you know, be, be prepared, be prepared to hold it or to not be able to get rid of it if things go south. Um, but in terms of me getting in my position, I bought, you know, kind of like what I would consider a sizable position and um, I had a good till canceled order in there and I just sat there for a few weeks and then um, got filled. So, you know, sometimes you can come across more liquidity in these things than, than you'd imagine. Yeah. And Jeff and I, we've talked about that before on on the podcast and, you know, his experience with illiquid stocks, he really just talks about just putting in the order, like a GTC order. And of course we kind of do that now, but, um, even if it's for like 10,000 shares, you'd be surprised how sometimes you'll just check it and bam, like somebody took you out or you got your stock or whatever. Yep. Yeah. That's interesting. So let's roll into the business. Um, maybe you could give us a little bit of a background on the company, what they do, um, like what units make it up and kind of go from there. Yeah, sure. Um, so they're an American company, and they're founded in 1960s. I think that they actually just had their 50th anniversary, so they've been around quite a while. And the guy who founded it and is still the CEO, he's the guy who invented ultrasonic welding. So, you know, essentially he patented that technology and then built a company around it. Everything they do to this day is still ultrasonic technology-based. Um, what is that? Yeah, so ultrasonic welding is essentially just, uh, it's an industrial technique where you apply like high frequency ultrasonic acoustic vibrations and you apply it to either a plastic or a metal essentially just to weld it together. Um, so there's, there's different reasons for that that are kind of technical, but it's used like all over the place with all kinds of products. And since the original invention, it's been used to apply, you know, have, it has different applications now. Like, so this company, uh, they kind of have, or the way that I framed it in the article is that they have kind of two main divisions. They do a few other minor things, but two main divisions. One is just ultrasonic welding. That's what I just described, plus um, some machines that use ultrasonic waves for like uh, sealing packaging. So that's kind of like one division. And then the other division is what I call like the sonic gator division. So that's using, um, you know, ultrasonic waves also, essentially like sound energy. And the sonic gators are used in liquids. Um, it's a different application than the welding. So the sonicators are essentially used more in like research and university pharmaceutical type settings. Um, and they have different applications, but it all comes down to the, the ultrasonic uh, technology. And essentially, 
um, the welding products are made with or sold to you know manufacturing and industrial companies they're used for sealing packaging or welding things together and then the sonicators are sold to more um, research oriented businesses or they, they can be used in some manufacturing processes but essentially the sonicators what they want to accomplish is either one to like extract a compound um, two to like break an interaction of a substance so like in a university lab they use these to like break cells apart or fragment DNA um, or three is just to mix one substance into another like things that don't typically mix well um, I talked about in the article a little bit like some newer applications that they have for it which are in nanotechnology and in cannabis so the cannabis is uh, application is kind of like infusing the THC into a food, food or beverage so that's kind of how that works Wow, that's interesting. And, and how much revenue does this business do? And do you know um, like how much makes up each uh, unit of the business, of the revenue? Yeah, so they don't specifically call that out. Um, they, you know, they're dark and they pretty much just provide financials. Sure. Um, but pretty much like what I was able to infer from my research is the revenue split is about 50-50. Um, and their 2018 revenue was about 23 mil. Um, so they end their fiscal year in June, June 30th. So the last time, or when their financial statements ended, was like about a year ago. Wow, that's cool. So moving on to like the quality of the business, um, you know, um, Jeff and I, when we when we speak about this, we always talk about like checking the the EBIT margins and seeing going far back and seeing like the variance between them, and um, not only that, but I guess like the gross margins as well. And just briefly looking at the financials that you provided in your write up, it looks like they're all pretty steady, like right around fifty percent the gross margins. Yeah, I mean, from a you know quantitative point of view, um, the the margins look steady and they look to me high for an industrial company especially of this size so their gross margins are something like 50 percent and their EBIT margins are like mid-teens um, so you know those are pretty solid and definitely better than what I see with a lot of industrial companies this size so I think uh, from a you know quality quantitative point of view that you know, they, they have high quality, they've posted profits in 10 of the 12 years that I have financials for that I was able to take a look at. Um, so, yeah. You know, that's interesting. And then I guess also hitting on the quality, um, when Jeff and I think about, you know, the quality of the business, one of the things that you did in your write-up, which I thought was pretty cool, is you went on Glassdoor and, and tried to learn about, like, the culture of the business and, like, reviews and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, so I like to look at the qualitative side also. And really coming into this company, I don't know if I was biased or skewed or whatever, but I wasn't expecting to find that I thought that it had pretty high quality um, in, in both of those senses, qualitative and quantitative. Um, and I would say like the only downside on the quality is really like the capital allocation decisions. And I strictly say that because like, like the 
the title I had, they're just building a cash pile. So they've just had cash every year, definitely for the last five years, just building and building and building. And so never really like to see that. Have they ever um, said but, like what they're doing with that cash or have they ever like paid a special dividend or anything like that? No, they don't pay any dividends and they don't really communicate with shareholders much at all. Um, so, you know, maybe the leadership team has something in mind that they're going to do with the cash, but it definitely hasn't been communicated. Um, they bought back like a tiny bit of shares, but it's difficult to obviously because it's not a lot of float um, and, and illiquid. And, you know, um, I talk about a little bit, you know, we'll probably talk about capital allocation um, maybe a little later on, but they have had some acquisitions in the past. And one didn't turn out very well, and the other, um, it's a little hard to tell, but I think probably did, at least from like a strategic point of view. Um, so, yeah, I did, from a qualitative point of view, kind of look at, I would like to look at Glassdoor to see kind of, um, not necessarily specifics, but what like the trend is, and everybody, it uh, looks like everybody likes a CEO like a lot, like he's he's older gentleman, he's been there, everyone gives him high praises. And, you know, he has high insider ownership, 70% of the company, which kind of um, aligns his He's got his a lot interest. of skin in the game, yeah, sure. Yeah, right. And how long and has he been really, with the company? Because he was the one that started it, right? Yeah, he's been with them the whole time. Yeah. And then when he retires, it sounds like his daughter is going to run the company? Exactly. Sounds like that's the plan. She's been there since uh, 1995, so quite a while also, and she's... Seems like she's running the day-to-day -day operations now. I think she was just promoted to president um, of the whole company, and she was previously president of one of those business units that I talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's kind of a succession plan there. Um, but they also one thing on the quality side that really stood out to me was, uh, and several people actually mentioned this in the Glassdoor reviews, is they have like a profit sharing program for employees. Um, for all employees, and they receive 10% of the company's pre-tax profits on a quarterly basis. Um, so I like that on a couple fronts, really. One is that I think it really aligns the people doing the actual work with shareholders. So I think it's great if, like, management incentives are aligned with shareholders, but even better if, like, everyone in the company's uh, incentives are, you know? Mm -hmm. um, no, certainly, yeah. That's awesome. So I like, yeah, it is, um, and really like you know that can play out in different ways. But when everyone is kind of on the same page like that and thinking like an owner of the business, then um, like let's say a company is not like that. You know, the people they want to like upgrade the equipment, have the newest stuff, have the best corporate office, all these types of things, and they gripe about working and you know, a little more hours or whatever, but I guess in a company where you have a profit sharing program, maybe you get a little bit more of that transfer of like, okay, if we can put off one or two more years using this old, you know, molding machine or piece of equipment or whatever, like it actually impacts my bonus directly. So kind of really like that about it. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd say it's, it's fair to say that it's kind of like a, a cash cow type of business. Um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like a C's Candies that Warren Buffett bought. So um, they're really good at producing cash, but when it comes to growth, 
there it doesn't seem like based on the numbers that there's a ton of opportunity to redeploy their retained earnings uh -huh. to growth sure um, so for somebody that's like a really good capital allocator who can take the excess capital and reinvest into other ventures and produce high returns like Warren and C's, like, you know, this is probably like, you could even call it a wonderful business. Um, and it's probably worth a higher multiple to somebody like that. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I'm looking at your write-up. You talked about how the industry outlook for ultrasonic welding uh, predicts five-year market growth of 2.9%. Um, so you pretty much accounted for zero um, real growth. And the revenue from 2014 has gone from about $20.3 million to 2018 to about $22.9 million, $23 million. Um, So probably the outlook for this company, like on a revenue basis, probably obviously isn't like in growth mode or, or anything too crazy. Exactly, exactly. So, um, but anytime yeah. you can find a net cash business that's profitable, obviously that's that's incredibly interesting. Yeah, definitely. And even like with the growth, though, the growth um, prospects I don't think are like terribly pessimistic because when you look, yeah, definitely from 2014 to 2018, depending on the time period you pick, it's like zero growth or little growth. And, you know, sometimes with industrial companies, they're their sales and earnings can be a little lumpy from year to year. Mm -hmm. um, but if you do go back to like 1996, uh, the revenues were like eight mil. Um, so they've been able to go, go from like eight mil to, you know, 23 mil over, uh, over 20 years, which is like a 4% compounded, um, revenue growth rate, but they've been able to grow profits faster. So, they compounded over 1996 to 2018 at like 7.5% uh, earnings. Um, so that's that's not terrible. And I think the reason for that is something that you and Jeff have talked about before. Um, definitely Jeff has in some of his write-ups, but essentially it's just economies of scale. And, you know, when you're going from um, 8 mil to 23 mil in 20 years and you're a small industrial company, that has relatively high fixed costs compared to maybe like a large multinational company, you know, you're able to grow your profits faster than your sales because, you know, like I said, the economy is a scale and going from two mil to 20 mil is a much bigger difference than going from two bill to 20 bill, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. No, that, that's definitely really interesting. And it says uh, over the last five years, the company has almost doubled its cash position. They've added about 70 cents per share every year in cash. And now they have about 64% of their assets in cash and securities. Yeah, exactly. Well, that kind of leads us to talking about the value of the company. Yeah, I'm curious how you thought about the value. I mean, is it like one of the, one of the Monish Pabra, you know, um, you know, or, or people that say like, you don't need to know a man's weight to know that he's fat, right? You don't need to know its exact value, know it's undervalued. I mean, I'm curious to hear how you did value it, but it kind of seems like one of those situations. Yeah, and that's a great quote. Um, I'm glad that you brought that up. But like in a nutshell, it's cheap. Um, it was, you know, $8 when I wrote it up and 10 now, so it's a little bit above um, net current asset value, it's not quite a net net, but regardless, it's still really cheap. I mean, so, you know, just in cash, they had uh, about $5.20 on, you know, $10 stock, and then they have more than $8 a share in net current assets, so, 
and, and that was about a year ago, so it's probably more than that right now. Um, and remember, too, that they only got to report half a year of lower taxes, so um, this next full year will be with the full 25% new you know, tax breaks um, on corporations. So that'll be like a nice little uh, adjustment for them. Um, and with the current price at 10, the PE is about 10, but if you adjust it for the cash, it's like four. Um, so yeah, it's cheap no matter how how you look at it pretty, pretty much. And kind of another way that I like to frame it is to say, you know, it's a dark, small family-owned business. Some people might say that that's worth a PE of like, I don't know, 8 to 10, because I think people look at companies like this more as private companies. Sure. Not, pub sure. No, not public. Um, and so, you know, you say like, okay, so, but it's a pretty high quality business, so if you're going to say a range of 8 to 10, let's say this is worth 10, and, but then you're essentially saying that the market's putting a value on the cash of zero dollars, um, which, you know, is five dollars a share. Sure. So, you know, is that fair? Is the cash worth something or is it worth nothing? I think that's kind of like another way that, that you can frame it. And in terms of like a fair multiple, like that's kind of a, a hard discussion sometimes. I mean, multiples can be a funny thing. Um, it really can depend on the buyer, like I mentioned earlier, or um, I was recently reading actually one of Jeff's old singular diligence reports on ARC restaurants, and um, one thing that I remember him talking about is ARC had like always traded at a really low multiple, like an EV to EBIT of three or something, but then as soon as they started paying a, a dividend, um, it shot up to seven and stayed there. So it's just like, you know, that could definitely happen with a company like this. If they come out, start communicating more, if they come out and say, okay, with this cash, we're going to give a dividend, it just pops. Sure. No, that that's definitely interesting. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, it's uh, definitely an interesting stock that everybody should definitely take a look at. So what risks do you see with the business from your point of view? Or maybe like with the, uh, the investment too? Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, so they don't have any debt, um, so that's good and not really a risk. I think um, the biggest risk is the capital allocation, really. They don't really have much of a track record. They had an acquisition in the late 1990s that turned out badly. They essentially bought it, and a few years later sold it for a big loss. Um, and then in 2009, uh, they did make an acquisition from another publicly traded company called Missonics. Um, so they were, so SEMA, Sonics and Materials, was uh, in the Sonicator division. They were the largest, um, they had the largest market share, and Missonics had a Sonicator division, and they were second. So um, they pretty much bought their largest competitor. So I'm guessing that was a, a good acquisition, at least from a, a strategic point of view. You put it on mute. Sorry about that. Uh, had to mute it for a second. No, you're good. I'm I could I could cut that all out. Don't worry about that. Yeah, Whenever cool. they come, you could just stop talking, and I could just edit it out as much as possible. 
All right, great. Sorry about that. No, you're good. Uh, so, all right, jumping back in here. Um, yeah, so they bought their largest competitor to give them, like, a really nice industry lead and be, you know, that's kind of their moat, um, is that they're the largest in Sonicators. It's their niche. Um, so, really, it's just the whole investment case is, like, what are they going to do with their cash? Will they continue to build cash at the same rate? And so I think that the capital allocation um, is a risk and just kind of the tangibles about being, you know, a dark, illiquid stock of it. If things do go south, like maybe something unexpected happens that's going to be um, special cause variation. They start losing sales, like, and it doesn't look like it's going to reverse. It could be kind of hard to get out. Um, so... The other thing, too, is just, like, not that much opportunity, like I said earlier, for reinvesting the retained earnings, at least right now. Um, so, you know, that's, on the one hand, um, good because, you know, they've been successful in increasing the cash generation without tying up a lot of cash in the business or, like, inventory and PPE and stuff like that. But on the other hand, um, not a lot of room for, for growth kind of just passing along inflation costs pretty much. Yeah, got it. Well, I think it's a, a great idea. And I just kind of want to read something that you summarized uh, in closing with this podcast. Um, and, you know, always when you come to these types of companies, a lot of people may say, well, is it a melting ice cube? And in my opinion, a melting ice cube, like I said, is maybe a company that maybe net cash, but is losing money, right? And this company is actually um, profitable. Um, but you said this company doesn't look like a melting ice cube. And if they continue building cash at the same rate, they will have their entire market cap and net cash in three years. Even with a small, obscure company like SEMA, it's likely that Mr. Market will eventually come knocking in a better mood and with a better price. Mornish Pabrai recently gave a talk called The Ten Commandments of Investment Management, and you said commandment four is thou shalt look for a hidden P.E. of one. Um, so I think that's incredibly interesting and one that I think everybody should check out. The ticker is S-I-M-A. Uh, it's an over-the-counter dark stock, sonics, and materials. Luke, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was great, and I think you explained the business incredibly well, and you know, your write-up on the website was great. How can people get in contact with you if they want to talk about the stock? I'm not on social media or anything like that, but anybody can feel free to shoot me an email. Um, my email is just luke.elliot, uh, my name, at apexholdingcompany.com. Awesome, Luke. Well, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. And everybody else, I want to thank you for listening to the show. Definitely reach out to Luke if you want to talk about this um, this stock. I know he'll be happy to, to chat with you about it. And if you do want to get access to his writings and you do want to become a member, use the podcast promo code, which is podcast. And I'll take some money off of the Focus Compounding subscription price. Hope everybody has a great week. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.